When someone said to me, you think you have time, they were right, you know what I mean? I'm laying in a hospital on my deathbed. Jesus Christ, like I should just start this company today. And so I did. <laughs> Tune in every Tuesday to the Learning with Lowell podcast with me, your host, Lowell, to hear world-class scientists, startup founders, CEOs, and authors, people who you wouldn't normally hear about but are making huge waves all the same. You'll understand them and their work by hearing their passion, laughter, advice, and hearing them, the experts, break down what they're working on so that you can learn Push the boundaries of your knowledge and understanding. Three quick ways to show your support and get unique, exclusive, and fun content is by checking out learningwithlowell.com, our Patreon page, even if it's just a buck, it keeps this advertisement free, and subscribing. And in that little bit of an intro, that was Robert Quinn of Patch D. We get into, I mean, exactly that, why he kept almost dying, why it's driven him to build something to help other people, and why his mission with Patch D is to get more people to live a normal life. We get a very good sense of who he is, what he's passionate about, what he's gone through. And it's really an interesting discussion. If you want to learn about post-traumatic growth, this is an episode for you. If you want to learn about building a company in adversity, this is the episode for you. I hope each and every one of you get something from this. And, and like he says in this episode, if you hate this episode, if you love this episode, if you don't think anything good about this episode, send me a message and let me know or let him know. And for anyone wondering how do you spell Patch D or where the name came from, that is the very first question I ask and what you're about to hear. How'd you come up with the name Patch D for the name of your startup? I, I think it's I think it's I think it's kind of on the nose. Yeah, <laughs> we came up with the name Patch D mostly because we made a patch. <laughs> like I'd like, I wish there was a better story to that. But we were like looking for a name, and we were driving in the car, and I was like, "Ugh, we need a name." And it's like throughout all this stuff, and it's like they're all crap. Like we just need something we can get. And I was like, "How about Patched?" And everyone's like, "Yeah, Patched." And now I realize that it's actually the most obnoxious name under the sun. Just because, like, if you've ever tried to like give someone your, like it's, it's actually a really good name because it like describes what we do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the issue is, you try to tell someone your email address. I don't know if you've tried to tell someone it, it, you're at patchedmedical.com, like over the phone. Like, <laughs> <mm-mm>. <laughs> can you spell that? Is that a D? Is that an ED? Is there like an apostrophe? And it's like, oh god. It's not no. <laughs> I can I can kind of get that. My my name is constantly butchered by people when I give them my email. When I'm I don't mainly with my like mainly medical professionals have a horrible medical front desk professionals do not they think my name's Will or uh, <laughs> William a- Lowell. How do you hear Will? But you know I I can get the same thing like patched like you, I would think it's a ED. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's it. Everyone thinks it's an ED. And then you're like, no, no D. And they're like, so is it just patch? Is that like, and then it's like, no, it's like patch D medical. And they're like, that's so confusing. Why would there be a D? And it's, oh my God. <laughs> you could probably do like patch capital D medical. <laughs> yeah, that, that could work. Just like, um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> like I said, I think it's really on the nose. How would you elevator pitch what you've built? <laughs> All right, so we're on floor. We're on the ground floor, Lowell. We're okay. on the ground floor of the building. I've just hit floor sixteen, which is the floor we're on here. In the and I'd be like, "Hey, um, I'm Rob. Uh, we uh, we make a simple device um, and deep you use deep neural networks to solve the problem of sepsis." And you'd be like, "What the hell is sepsis?" And that's how I would get you into a conversation. That's usually how we do it. That's not the best elevator pitch I've ever done in my life, but off off the cuff, that's what I'd probably say. So the, the basic rule is kind of like it, as succinctly and as quickly as possible. No, absolutely not. <laughs> the goal is to get them to ask you more questions, right? No, in, in this, yeah, in the, in the sense of how to, how to say something that makes them want to ask more, but at the same time say enough where it feels like you've said something. It's, yeah. like, it's kind of like how when politicians talk and they a- answer questions, like it's almost like they didn't answer the question. 
Like, mm. they'll be like, hey, when are we going to fix this thing? And they're like, yeah, that's a really, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like 15 minutes later, you realize, wait a minute, you didn't answer my question. <laughs> but like, you're curious. It's, it's funny though, right? Like, cause like, actually like, what I usually do if I want to get someone into a conversation about my company and they're like, what do you do? And like, I, this is like probably more honestly what our elevator pitch is just because I mean, the whole point of an elevator pitch is to get them to ask more questions. And so people are like, like, what do you do? And like, you're like, oh, I run a company. And they're like, oh, what does your company do? Look, it's a long story, but I started the company to save my own life. And like, suddenly it's like, wait, what? <laughs> you started the company to save your own life? And it's like, yeah. And it's like, we solved something called sepsis. And they're like, oh, wow. And by that point, you've reached floor 16. But like, the second you're at that point, everyone's like, wait, stop. Like, hang on. And they jump out of the elevator and start talking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the whole that is, elevator actually works though, right? Because like, that's actually legit. That's usually what I start with. Well, it's good that something positive can come out of it. I think that's something we, like a shared thing between the two of us is that we both have had very obnoxious life events like that. <laughs> I've, I've noticed there's two routes that's people's, I haven't seen a third one. Maybe, you know, this could be like, Hey, have you seen like a different route? But either you become like really almost like there's this, this book about Leonard, Leonardo da Vinci by mm. Walter Isaacson, where he talks about how Leonardo da Vinci took the fact that he was a bastard and made it a positive in a time where being a bastard was always thought to be negative. And he would say, thanks. I'm thankful that this happened because I am so different than everyone else. I had to teach myself. I had a different way of education. Leonardo da Vinci would not be himself if he was not a bastard. Like this thing as a negative, he made to be such an integral part of being positive. And so it seems that's kind of the route we're going. But then there's the other route where like, I feel like people get crushed by it. And I always feel like, what can we do to give them the structure to rebuild themselves? Because yeah, you know, like with the right with the right pressure, you become a diamond. But not to say we're diamonds in any regard. But have you noticed like any other way that people go out? Like I just noticed like those two dichotomies. Like it's either take it as a positive and like fuels them. Like there's yeah. always like this kind of hunger you can tell. You're absolutely right, though, right? Because like, and that that's the whole. Like, so that's the whole thing behind post traumatic stress versus post traumatic growth. Everyone's heard the whole oh post traumatic stress. It's it's like this thing, and everyone knows about it. But then there's the then there's the other side, which is the post traumatic growth. And I think it's like, how do we get people in the, in the mindset of post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress? That's something I, it's honestly, Lowell, after, I, after I'm done with this company, well done, Rob. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. have an exit, whatever happens, whatever the future holds. That's something I really actually genuinely want to address in the world. How do we help people who are like in a situation, same situation that I was? I don't know what it was for me. And I still haven't figured that out, but I, I want to get to the bottom of that and then help other people do the same thing because my life definitely got better after transplant not, and after my diagnosis than what, not work. And I, it's, obviously I'm not unique in that. You've had the same situation. I know plenty of others, but I've also seen the exact opposite, right? Like I've also been in hospital next to people and I'm, what is like, how is your, it's, your life isn't over. In fact, you've just, been, you've just been given a new liver. You know, you've got a normal life again in inverted commas. Yes, you've got a million tablets to take. Yes, there's all these problems that you have. You've been given a second chance. Why are you wasting it? Not wait, that's a horrible thing to say, but you know what I mean? Like if you can do something here and actually make a huge goal of your life and it really affects them. And I feel for those people immensely. And it's like, how do I, how can I help someone like that? Find a way to leverage that traumatic event to do something cool, cool or awesome. This is probably a guess a little bit about your personality, but I would assume you have an internal versus external locus of control where you, where I think you would take ownership of what, what things happen to a great extent versus instead of assuming you're, you're lucky, you'd say, Hey, I have skills that made it happen. So I think maybe like people who have an internal locus of control, they have a, a tendency to take a greater sense of ownership, which is 
not always positive. Like there's a lot of stuff about my medical thing where I kind of blame myself. It doesn't make any sense, but like, I, I would like probably has, maybe that's something. I don't know. This is like me just kind of spitballing. That's it's really funny though, right? Because like I've been told emotionally, I have a very much an external locus of control, which is bad. <laughs> I'm not to have that, but absolutely. But that's so interesting though. For me, for me, I, I think what it is is more that it's like, holy shit, I nearly died. What, what about all these things I could have done? You know, like, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm laying there in a hospital bed. Like, all up probably about 250 days in hospital, if I had to guess. You spend a lot of time looking out the window, uh, thinking like, holy crap, it'd be nice to be outside right now. Jeez, it'd be nice to be going and doing X, Y, Z. Man, I wish I had done X, Y, Z. And like, maybe that's what pushed me more towards an internal locus of control. But for me, that's what it was. It was sitting in the hospital room, looking out the window, I think, and just being like, holy crap. There's all these things I, I sh- like, it was almost like, cause like the thing is, and we, we haven't really talked about this, but like I had like, like, you, like, you know, I spoke to you before this call, but uh, this, this um, interview, but I had 18 episodes of sepsis, you know, which is roughly 18 episodes of sepsis, which means I've faced my own mortality. I've looked my parents in the eyes and I've said goodbye. That's some scary shit, you know? And at that point in time, when you've gone through that, I don't know about you. Cause I, I, I know you've been through something similar, but for me, I was like, holy crap, I might not be here tomorrow. And for me, it would be, I'd be, I'd be fine one day and then 24, 48 hours later, I'd be in hospital saying goodbye to my family because I didn't think I was going to make it. And I'm not sure my doctors did either. And so there's this realization that, holy crap, I could die in two days. And at that point, it was like, what are all the things I want to do? How can I make a difference in this world? What is the, like, what is the meaning of life? Why do I do all this stuff? And I, that's what it was for me. But, but you could also just as well be like, well, everything's screwed. I'm, I'm done. And so like, I don't know. It's a really interesting one. Everything you said is exactly things that I thought of when I was, there were times where my doctor said like, don't move. When after I would have these things, they'd be like, take, like, take a day, don't do anything. Take several Ooh. days, don't do anything. I, I would literally crawl myself out of bed and I'd walk 10 miles that day and it was not physically good for me. But afterwards, even though I would be in my entire body would be screaming at me, don't follow this advice. But at the same time, I felt like I was in control even though it wasn't as good, it, I was in pain, I owned that. And if it was going to get worse, we are, I've already been to that stage. So I already know, I've already looked down that tunnel. And if, I would rather walk that 10 miles, be a little bit physically more fit, accept yeah. the fact that my day's going to suck no matter what, and have mm-hmm. it be a little bit more in my control than anything. And like, whenever, whenever I didn't, I, I just always imagined myself back in the hospital bed, s- seeing like so much being taken away. And like, there's like, I don't need any more motivation than that. To some extent, I think I'll always be kind of sitting there waiting to see if it'll come back, you know, if I'll be back there. And so I feel like there's like a, yeah, there's like a, I don't think it's been like several years and maybe it's been like, you know, even longer for you, but I don't think it ever goes, I don't think it really goes away. Like, I think it's just kind of there. I don't think I could ever retire. I would always like, like, (laughs) like when you're done with your company, like you're going to find some other way to be, have a positive impact on people's lives. I was very traumatic too. I don't know. I find it really like for me personally, I, it's very hard for me to talk about it, even though I've been trying to talk about it more and more in, in the George church episode. I, I, I talked about it a little bit more, but mm. like, it's really hard for me That's so interesting. because like teachers and it's not the positive environmental things I'm trying. It's like, wasn't like very well supported by my school. And so they made it harder than it needed to be. And so it's, whenever I, I tell people about it, I feel like they'll think less of me. You know, I don't know maybe if you think that, but like, or you, you, or you have any concerns about that. Sometimes I, I've, I've noticed I'll tell people it and they'll, they'll treat me as if I'm still sick. Like, oh, you can't come out and play with us. You have to stay inside. And it's like, well, no, I'm better now. Like, <laughs> stop it. 
I don't know if people look at you that way and they're like, oh, like they treat you different. Ah, like you literally just hit on like something huge there, Lowell. Holy crap, man. That's exactly the, the whole like, you know, you still walk 10 miles every day, even though you know you weren't supposed to and you were just because you were in control. Mm-hmm. The night before, I like one of the times I nearly died, I, I went out and played a game of Ultimate Frisbee, even though I knew I was going to end up in hospital that night. <laughs> I feel you. And yes, people treat you differently. And this, I actually, you know, Lowell, this I think is actually part of it. And I don't know if, like, if this actually goes to air this part that we're chatting about now. Um, I, if anyone's out there listening and they've got someone who's in a situation like me or like you, one of the things that always gets me is exactly what you said. Is that people, if you're still like, particularly because I've, I've never been well, right? After transplant five years, I've always, had, I've always been sick. Like I, I've never had a good run. I'm still, like, I mean, I'm, I'm now out of it, right? <laughs> and so like anytime anything goes wrong, everyone's like, oh, you should rest. Oh, you should take it easy. And yes, they may be right. But at that point in time, there's one person advocating for me to live a normal life. And there's everyone else in my life telling me that I should take it easy, slow down, like don't do so much. And that's the part that like, I think can drag people into post-traumatic stress is when they start listening to everyone else and being like, wow, I am sick. You know, I, I, I do have a problem. And, and yes, while you do have a problem, I think you need to believe that you can get through it <laughs> and you can still live a normal life. And I think that's it. It's a belief that you can live a normal life. And you ask anyone, and this, I'm sure this is true for you just based off what you said. Like you ask anyone that knows me and it's the same thing. It's so bloody minded. He'd never listened to me when I said he needed to slow down and stop doing stuff. And I think that's why I, why I had growth rather than stress in a weird way, even though I know it's not good for me. It sort of was the reason I made it out the other side, I guess. I had like a combination of both. Like I went like down and then I, get, I was like at 260. And then it was just this idea that you can, you can control it. I think the, the only thing I can figure out when it comes to the meaning of life is that if you like distill everything down, the only things that seem to matter is what people choose to do. So like, like right now we have, like we have a, a relative infinite number of things we could do. Like you could hop up in one leg. You could like, you, you could do like a, a number of things and yet you choose not to. And I think that's yeah. the only thing that matters. The night before you went, that you knew you were going to go into the hospital, you chose to go and have a fun time with your friends. I yeah. think that choice matters. I, yeah. I don't, I don't think like money matters. I don't think a lot of things matter. I think the only thing that really matters is like what people choose to do and how they choose not to do things. Like that's all I look at. And so like, I, I, know, I know we probably need to get off this topic because it's like, <laughs> but like his, like just like the, the night before I got called up for transplant, actually, like when I was really, really sick, I went down to the beach and I probably shouldn't have been going this far because you're only supposed to be about an hour radius from the hospital. I jumped in the car with my friends. We went down to the beach and I actually said to my friend, this is the night before transplant. I got the call for transplant. Look, dude, if I got called into the hospital tomorrow, had the transplant and died on the table. And I said, I'd be okay because today was a freaking awesome day. And that's what I live for. The next day I got the call. I don't know. I just sort of like, that sort of summarized the whole experience for me. But fuck, if I, if I go out and play Frisbee the night before and then die the next day, at least I had a good night playing Frisbee the day before. <laughs> Which uh, probably someone you might really enjoy reading about is there's a three book series on Teddy Roosevelt. He's the, he's the president of the turn of the century, like, the ni- like 1906 to like 1912, 13, right. something like that. Like FDR's uncle. And uh, FDR actually, FDR married his cousin. They're like the, the FDR Franklin Delano Roosevelt married, but whatever her first name is Roosevelt. Like she was a Roosevelt too, and huh. she and she was Teddy's favorite niece. It's like they're very incestuous. But the Teddy, when he was younger, he he was like deathly ill because I think he had asthma, he had a number of problems, and everyone was telling him he wasn't going to make it. And he re, he would re- recall his father holding him, ha- helping him breathe by putting him on his chest, slowly trying to help. Teddy breathe and he can't breathe because he has asthma and mm. 
And so he goes through that. And like afterwards, he became really physical. As soon as any day he could, he would be really active. He was an ornithologist, you know, which study of birds if, if people aren't nerds. And he was like such a gregariously physical person that when he was in the White House, he literally lost sight in one of his eyes because he was having boxing matches in the, in the basement <laughs> of, of the White House. And the greatest story about Teddy Roosevelt, like not the, not the greatest, but like this guy is just so fantastic, is that he, he took this negative and you could you can kind of tell in everything he did, and even in his pictures, he'd always have his like his hands and fists, like he was like bottling up energy. He wrote wow. more letters than any president we've ever had by a huge margin. He wrote huge books that people still use as references today. They, the War of eighteen twelve, like the naval history. The, the like at the same time, there was a time where his dog was being attacked by a mountain lion, and so he's like. He's he's riding this horse, right? And his dog's like maybe a hundred yards in the in the distance. And he's like, you know, like it's in danger. He gallops at full speed, jumps off his horse, jumps off his horse going fast, takes out his knife, stabs the thing in the head, and then rolls oh up and then just gets back on the horse and keeps going. Wow. That, guy, that guy is such a beast. But everyone has different types of bad, but like I, I love that he used his stuff as a catalyst to be great. And FDR was the same way. He was a mm. governor when he got polio. I think he was a governor when he had polio. And he took like a couple, like a, a year where he just was like down in the dumps. And mm. then afterwards, like beforehand, he was kind of a playboy, I think, how most people describe him. <laughs> and afterwards, he was like this really thoughtful person because he understood suffering. And so both people, I don't think, would become president without those events. But I think I think he'd really get a, a kick out of FDR. Not, not like more Teddy Roosevelt. Like that guy really took something negative and made it positive. And, but I don't know if, you've, if you're a biography or history fan, but uh, rec- recommendations for anyone. There's the three-part the three series on, on Teddy Roosevelt. It's fantastic. All right, so like, transitioning to, more the, to what you're building, how, how big do you want it to be? If you could kind of like write your check or like write your future, where, where do you want it? Like, what do you want to be written? How many people do you want to affect? And how quickly do you want to affect them, if that makes sense? Like, you, you're kind of like Evan Almighty a little bit, if, if you've ever watched that TV show. You can kind <laughs> of make whatever you want happen within a local parameter. So what's the world look like with, what, with Patch D if it's, like, fully successful? Look, honestly, sepsis is the starting point for us, obviously. What does the world look like for us as a company? I've always had this dream that hospitals become a place that don't really I've got to be careful what I say here because I have, people, I have like doctors coming after me. But like, <laughs> I always have to dream that hospitals become a thing of the past. And, and not, and what, I've got to be careful what I say there because it's not quite what I mean. I mean, they become a place for just, just for acute illnesses. I mean, that makes see, sense. Yeah, you see so many people in hospital for like basically monitoring um, and like observations and trying to make sure they don't become septic or, you know, and there was, I remember when I first had transplanted, there was someone that was in there 365 days or something. She was coming up on a year in hospital. I was like, Oh my God, like that is just an excessive amount of time. Like surely we're at the point now where we can predict a lot of the things that are going to happen to you and then manage you as an outpatient. How big do we want this company to be comes down to that dream of mine that hospitals become a thing of the past and you sort of live your life as an app. There's us and there's a number of other companies that are trying to do this. Who knows, we're the part of them or we like eat them or whatever, you know, but my, my dream for, for Patch D and, uh, Patched and like a lot and companies like ours is that we end up becoming sort of the de facto outpatient monitor. You put, a, you put a device like ours on, you leave hospital and then you have some sort of AI running in the background that can predict the onset of any sort of illness. Sepsis is a great starting point because there's 1.5 million Americans with sepsis each of them costs about $14,000 when they get admitted into hospital with sepsis. And it's almost entirely preventable. I mean, like that's the perfect 
initial use case, right? That's seven days in hospital for each person that we can prevent. So seven times 1.5 million, what's that? Uh, like 10 and a half million, like bed days we can save, like theoretically. And so like for me, if I could write my own check and write my own destiny, I would get everyone I possibly could out of hospital mm-hmm. um, and being treated as an outpatient because I think that's actually part of why people experience post-traumatic stress rather than post-traumatic growth is when you're in hospital and you don't need to be. I definitely spent a lot of days in hospital where I was well enough to get up and walk downstairs, but they were too scared to let me go in case I got another infection and died. My goal is to stop people being in that situation. And I don't think people realize how big a problem this actually is, right? Like this whole like excessive numbers of days in hospital. It affects so, so many people. Like I said, 1.5 million people in hospital with sepsis, a preventable condition. You know what I mean? Like it's just insane. You know? And that's just, that's just one aspect, you know, that we're talking about. The, it can quickly expand into many, many other things. And I think the thing that might help to me that I thought was really alarming that when I was researching what you were working on and, and like kind of familiar my, my, myself with like the hospital system is that the, 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 the part where you're in the hospital, that only represents like 2% of what we spend. Like when it comes to the yeah. entire everything, it's like 2%. And yet mm-hmm. it's, such, it's, the, it's the face that everyone sees. And, and so I say it's very doable to, to decrease that and make it such like a tip of the spear thing where there's other things you can be doing. Because if, if I could be at home having the same type of quality of care being monitored by this great technology versus being in a horrible hospital, hospitals are not fun. No. I don't think anyone, I don't know anyone who enjoys being in a hospital because I don't even think the doctors enjoy being in a hospital. <laughs> they, like they always look kind of grumpy sometimes, but I agree with you. Like you're, you're definitely going to have, maybe I should be like devil's advocate, be like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, go for it. But I mean, like this is actually the dream though, right? Is that like, you know, you, you, you have a chronic health condition that you, know, you go in for your appointment, they're like, look, I'm sorry, you've got primary sclerosis and cholangitis, which was the disease that took me out, uh, took my liver out, right? Like here, throw this on, you know, like just put it under your shirt. And like, we, this is why we design the patch in such a way that it feels like people, people forget that they're wearing it. <laughs> that's why we designed it that way. So people forget that they're sick. <laughs> like that's our dream is that people don't realize that they're sick. You know, you just wear this patch, you know, and like you go about your normal life, you live your goddamn normal life and you go and do all the things that you love doing. And you know, if we detect something that's going wrong, in this case, we're looking at it initially specifically for sepsis. But the second we detect that something's going wrong, we send an alert to a doctor who can then call you. And, and like, that's my dream for this company is that you don't have to do anything. You know what I mean? Like you, you just live your life, you know, and if something goes wrong, don't worry, we'll call you, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, Hey, you need to come in. We've noticed something on your, like, you know, notice something on your device, come in here. Um, we think we need to give you some oral antibiotics. Another great example. And this was a, uh, we might've talked about this in our first call, but there's this interesting study that's going out where they're using similar technology where they, not similar, but like they're putting like monitors in elderly people, I don't know the right nice way to say it, but like older people in in their rooms to see if they can start detecting the signs of Alzheimer's. And there are so many symptoms that a person just wouldn't know. Like you don't remember waking up in the middle of the night and pacing a little bit and going back to bed. That's one of the, that's one of the, you know, one of the, Hey, this is happening, you know, leads to something else. And we can like, if we know it's happening, then we can get all this other really interesting data. And, and when it comes to Alzheimer's, there's so little that is known, but like, they're getting some really target-rich stuff just from these sensors. And so it's a, it's a similar thing where it's like just knowing there's something there, monitoring you, making sure you're, you're doing well. But at the same time, I don't know if this is a component that you guys are ever going to do, but also seeing if there's anything else going on. Like, hey, you put this on your, your, your mother who maybe is at risk for Alzheimer's. You know, I don't know, anything. Yeah. You can get us, if something's happening, you can get them help before it's critical. Because if, if you get help in the critical zone, that's when it really starts costing a lot, both in time energy, resource, like everything. But if you can stop it, 
a year in advance and start like building the build like the building blocks in like there it's so much better but maybe i'm talking for you but like is that like part of what you want to do like having this yeah. detection and it's also like some predictive i don't know maybe predictive the, word, the, but yeah. but the, predict, the prediction is the whole reason the prediction is the whole point right it's not about detecting it when it happens oh bugger that you know what i mean like <laughs> like who cares if you can detect it when, i mean like it matters it but it really doesn't because you get it picked up anyway if you're in hospital what where it really makes a difference is picking up on stuff early for example with sepsis there are certain antibiotics that we know are as good in an oral form as they are in IV form, as long as that they, you know, but there's, a, there's an absorption time, right? Mm-hmm. Like ciprofloxacin is a great example. Um, you might want to double check that, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure ciprofloxacin is the one, one of the, one of the ones. We know that the oral antibiotic is as effective as the IV antibiotic, but there's just an absorption time. <laughs> and, you know, and, and what that means though, is that if you send like sepsis, when you get septic shock, your mortality rate's increasing 8% every hour. So like, if you can pick it up 10, 24 hours beforehand, and prescribe some sort of oral antibiotic. It entire it changes the 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 course of treatment for a patient, like the patient experience completely. <laughs> like it's an entirely different experience. This is what we at least at least is what we're assuming is going to happen based off what the research around. So that's the that's the thing for us. It's like it's not just sepsis, but with any condition, if you can pick it up even hours beforehand, you can drastically alter the course of treatment, and you can and you can drastically alter patient outcomes. I mean, when you're in septic shock and having your mortality rate increase eight percent every hour, every hour matters, right? I was just thinking, like, what's an easy way to visualize why it's better? In case people are like, oh, why would you do that? Still, but the imagine someone's falling over, you can catch them right as they're falling, or you can catch them three inches from the ground. You know, once harder to stop. Yeah. And so like, I think that might be like a good way to visualize for people listening in. He's getting you a couple inches, even as you like start to teeter, like you kind of like stumble a little bit. It's like right there, like, Hey, you might be falling. Come, let's go. Let's help yeah. you out. He's like, put your hand on their back to stop them falling backwards. Right. Whereas yeah. if, if, if you catch them three inches from the ground, you might not catch them in time. And they might <laughs> yeah, no. Right. <laughs> and that's, that, that's, 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 that's literally what it is, is for something like sepsis, right? Is this, if you catch sepsis at septic shock stage, which you often don't miss, like, which you often miss, right? There's been a number of times I've walked into a hospital and I, they've stuck a thermometer in my ear and told me that I'm normal when I've been running a temperature that's so close to 39.6 degrees Celsius because there's been a faulty thermometer. And just, you just need to buy yourself more time. We're hoping to do. And it makes a huge difference to the outcome. I'm just kind of sitting here marveling a little bit just at the idea of what that extra time could get like a doctor, like a highly trained team. Mm. I love it. But also like which, <laughs> which, which doctors treat you change can change as well, right? Oh, yeah. Because you're this out 24 hours beforehand. Then suddenly it's an issue for your primary care physician or your GP if you're Australian. You can, you can completely change the way that healthcare is conducted. And that's the really exciting part for me, right? <laughs> it's suddenly you're not an urgent care case clogging up an emergency. You, you, you're just getting some oral antibiotics from your primary care physician 24 hours. And the person who knows you. When I would go to the hospital... It was like oh. I was educating the doctor on what was going on. And they'd be like, mm, yeah, you sound like you know what you're doing. I- I'll believe you. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> this is my life. Let's be a little bit more, uh, like either agree with me or disagree with me with logic. Like, don't just like, like having yeah. someone who knows you, knows what's going on, being there for you. For people yeah. who have been sick, and I hope like, you know, nothing ever negative happens to you. But when a loved one's going through that, it yeah. really does. It, every little thing adds up. Like every every little kindness that you can give really does add, add up. Quick side story, Lowell. I, I was when I was in hospital once. I went in. They took me to like the there's this so, triage. Took me to this extra sort of probably see a like a primary care physician sort of a thing. And she's like, Oh no, you need to be an ED. Holy crap, what are you doing in here? And like shuffles me into the emergency department. Oh, he's had a liver transplant. And they're like, Oh, which one? And I was like, Guys, <laughs> like, come on, <laughs> this is my life. Let's not fuck around.
We've had like maybe 15 minutes of me just like agreeing, like this is such a, uh, an interesting <laughs> idea. Maybe, maybe a fun <laughs> question. <laughs> level. <laughs> maybe a, a fun like segue question would be, what is unconventional about what you're building that has made it hard for people to get on board? By doing something like this, you're taking, you're not taking control away, but you're basically, we have this black box, which is the, with the which is the artificial intelligent algorithm we've made, right? Hooray. <laughs> we know it works. We've tested it. Yada, yada, yada. Trying to convince a doctor <laughs> that they should trust a black box. <laughs> and that black box is probably more accurate than they are. That's a big leap. Um, and that's like, and this is, and honest to God, this is the biggest challenge that's going to be facing physicians and roll out of something like this or any technology that's similar to us, which is like some sort of sensor and a black box algorithm is getting doctors on board with the idea that you should listen to this alert. Cause like, think about this. You're a doctor, you're in a hospital. You're all, all that's going through your mind is holy shit. I missed that thing. You know, the other septic infection that was missed is now going into like multi-organ failure. I'm trying to save that person's life. I'm worrying about Mrs. Jones over in bed number six. And like this alert comes through from a system like ours being like, listen, your patient's getting sick. Hey, they don't have time to listen to something like that. <laughs> like I'm too busy. Like I've got someone about to die on me. Right. And B I've got to then trust that the thing I'm giving that we're giving them is actually like that something they should do something about. Right. And so like with every other system under the sun, that's medical, everyone focuses on like, how do we get very few false negatives? Like how do we, catch everybody, you know, uh, and, and don't worry if we have a few false positives, you know, if we get lots of people who like we thought were sick, but don't actually, aren't actually sick. Whereas I think for a lot of this stuff, the key is actually to do the opposite and to optimize for very few false positives so that when an alert is sent to a doctor, a preventative alert is sent to a doctor. It's a, you need to take this seriously. If you do take this seriously, you're going to not have another Mrs. Jones on your hand. And so that's, I don't know, that's, that's the thing for me that I think has been the biggest challenge is getting people on board with the idea that A, Something other than them is making the decision and it's probably right. <laughs> and, and B, that they should do something about it. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely see you having problems with, with the, the, the wrong, like doctors really like to believe they're right. And it's not even a matter of wrong diagnosis. It's more a matter of like, even though we know it does happen a fair bit with sepsis because it's just easy to miss, right? The, the, the interesting thing for me is it's, it's more like just having the time and the belief in the system to actually act. You know what I mean? Like you actually need to establish a new protocol that your device and your algorithm is something that needs to be acted on you know, and, and that it is, it, is a, it is a standard of care, you know. Doctors are like, the first question they ask is, oh, like, is their temperature above 37.6? Is their pulse rate above 120? Is their blood pressure below whatever uh, measure it happens to be? Like, everything's defined in these boxes. And this is the problem with conventional medicine as a whole. You need to show doctors, and this is a challenge we have, is that we need to show doctors that we are the patch algorithm score or whatever we give them is the equivalent of a heart rate being above 120 and a temperature being above, above a 37.6. And this is what it means. And that's the, that's the challenge um, I think it's going to be for us. But it brings, it brings to light a, a different point. Sorry, I'm just going to segue quickly to something else. Just cut me off if you feel like you want to, but... Not go. Yeah, it, it just brings up an interesting point is that like, and this is where I think classical medicine's broken is not the right word, but outdated is that we categorize everything in these boxes, right? If your temperature is above 37 points, and yes, there's some subjective things, like the, the doctor looks at you and goes, does he look sick? Like, does he look like he's going to die on you? But you look at someone like me and I always look healthy. Like even when I'm in hospital and they don't worry about me and their questions are, is his temperature above 37.6? Is his pulse above 120? Is his blood pressure below whatever? 
Whereas for me, when I would get sepsis, I would know I was getting sick 24 hours beforehand and my temperature would be within the normal range. <laughs> like it would be within the normal range, but it wouldn't be normal for me at that time of day. And this is the thing. Modern medicine is focused on these threshold-based systems, but the thresholds are A, different for everyone else, and it changes throughout the day. And so this, this, what's really interesting with what we're trying to do is that if you can look at the trends over time, you can pick up on things that even medicine can't, modern medicine can't pick up on because you're no longer looking at thresholds, you're looking for how things change over time. And therefore, is a temperature of 36.9 abnormal for Robert on a Tuesday at 8 p.m.? <laughs> you know, like every other Tuesday, it's at like 35.9. You know, like he usually runs low on a Tuesday at 8 p.m., but today he's 36.9 and it's been trending up all day. Maybe something's not right. Mm -hmm. And if we can like set a new standard around that, like something that looks at the gradient, you know, like how things change over time, I think that could be really exciting. Are you familiar with Silaris? They're out of Y Combinator. <laughs> yeah, I know the Silaris boys. <laughs> oh, I was just like, they, I think they, you guys are in this similar vein and the struggles. Well, yeah, you know, like they're basically offering another tool for psychologists and you're offering another tool for doctors. And yeah. ultimately you're going to be saving them time. So I'm just thinking like, how can I solve your problem? It's <laughs> like, that's what I'm thinking over here. I think for us, it's going to become, it's going to be an evidence-based, um, mm -hmm. and like, um, so it should be, you know what I mean? Evidence and evidence and, uh, and an adoption thing, right? I think uh, this is just my gut feeling if we can get in front of like, into, into conferences and get doctors talking about our stuff themselves at their own conferences and being like, look, it's been able to pick up on like, lots of my patients, maybe it's something we should pay attention to. Mm -hmm. um, and getting into journals and doing, doing that sort of research and, you know. Would it be something that you would target to the doctors versus over the admins that oversee? Because if, if you, there's like a, there's, there's only like a couple of people, there's only a couple of hospital systems. So I feel like if you could like go talk to those CEOs, you could get like 10,000 doctors in one go. Yeah. Uh, so, so this, this, but this is the interesting thing, Lol, is there's two, there's two aspects to everything. You need the CEO buy-in, right? You need the guy, or not necessarily CEO, but the finance department and the head of innovation or whatever the title they've given the person in the hospital. You need their buy-in. Sure. Absolutely. They're arguably the most important person, but there's no use in having their buy-in, the person who writes the checks buy-in if the doctor's never, ever going to give one to a patient. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And this is the thing. So like if we can get a reimbursement code for the insurance reimbursement code for the device and then convince physicians that it's a good idea to give to their patients because we're looking for th first 30 days post discharge, right? So we give a, the, the idea is that you give the device to the patient on discharge to wear for the first 30 days. And we're looking for signs of sepsis in those first 30 days. And so like the interesting part for me is if you can give like, you've got to convince the doctor to then actually give your device to the patient to wear on their like, for those first 30 days. And so you need the physician buy-in and physicians trust other physicians. They don't trust the head of finance. You know, you know what I mean? Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm an engineer, right? And so like when I was at least working in a corporate, um, I wouldn't pay a whole lot of attention to anything that didn't come from another engineer. And like, and that's really snobby and up, like, you know, like awful, but like, it's kind of true, right? No, it jives. No, <laughs> the, even, even other engineers are sometimes, well, I know I have a friend, a friend, a friend of mine is a dean of medicine somewhere, and they were telling me, I'm trying to like, I don't know if they'll listen to this and be like, oh, Lowell's talking about me, but uh, <laughs> they, were, they were having problems just getting doctors to use evidence-based practices versus experience-based practices. Like, hey, there's some new stuff coming out. Stop using, stop giving people a pill that's 20 years old. Like, we have better stuff now. <laughs> and <laughs> they, is gone. Try this new one. <laughs> 
and like a third of like maybe a third to 20% wouldn't do it. And the only course that they had was, all right, well, I'm basically going to phase you out and retire you early so I can bring new people in that are going to be more evidence-based. Cause like statistically people have a much better survivability rate with these, these other methods. So yeah, you're, you're kind of like, uh, you're subtly more of a liability, but it's like, hey. like you have like the doctors and then you, like this person was a doctor as well. And it was, so it's, it's a very, yeah, it's a very sticky thing. Cause I think it's like the more educated you are and the least educated you are, but the more like confident you are in your intelligence. Some, sometimes, not all the time, but like, it's like a dangerous thing. Yeah, no, I'm just like kind of like, yeah, this what's is What's saying? You should, you, should be, was it, you, should, you should be aiming for strong convictions loosely held or something. Because that's what we used to get told in the startup world. It's like, be firm in your beliefs until you see otherwise. <laughs> I've never heard of that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, strong convictions loosely held. I forget who told us that. Anyway, I had a bit of a chuckle at that when I first heard it. You mentioned there's a couple of things that you need to do. Evidence, getting some people on board, that type of thing. Oh. What, what is, I think of like a NASA thing where they have like a checklist to launch, launching being, you know, having, you know, saving that 1.5 million people who are having sepsis per year. Like what, what's the checklist to get you to that stage? <laughs> oh, that's a hell of a checklist, lol. <laughs> so get FDA approval, kind of a big one. <laughs> so yeah, that, that, that's obviously a big one for us. So like prove that it works. That's the, that's the thing for us. Like we know we've got a solid algorithm, right? We, we compared it against the current methods. We know, we know it does a good job and we does a good job hours beforehand. You know the algorithm's good, but we still need to we still need to build a piece of hardware that can measure the things we need to measure. We need to get everything through the FDA, and then more importantly, we need to get hospitals and insurers on board in the U.S. That's no easy feat, <laughs> but it's all doable, right? Like these are all solvable problems. Um, but that that to me would be the checklist: getting FDA approval, it'd be getting insurers on board, and getting hospitals and making sure everything works. So the, the only other thing that would be on that checklist would be to to publish a paper or two. And I, I genuinely think that's important. A lot of startups poo poo papers in other uh, other areas other than like obviously like biotech and stuff like that. But I think like research is actually really really important for adoption. Um, in our in our specific situation, I think for most most startups, it's not. <laughs> like it's just like you're you're releasing an app. It's just release it, see if people use it, right? Like you don't need that, but you like use some user testing, like. But like for us, like in order to actually get adoption, we need people to believe that it works, <laughs> mm-hmm. and actually not be one of these products that were an FDA approved blah blah that what does whatever and doesn't actually do anything, you know? Like so, we need to prove that it works, and it's like super important and obviously it's important for the fda as well is there like a time estimate will it be like are we talking like two or three years or are we like, like do you have advisors on board who are kind of familiar with the process or telling you like this is gonna be really long it's gonna or this is gonna be like hey you know if everything works really smoothly you know maybe a couple of years that's the thing though right like the timeline varies so so much and it's like if i gave, if I gave you any sort of time it would not be true like it's <laughs> You know what I mean? This like, thing. We, we, we know, we know, you know that a, you know that a, a, a 510k, which is like a, for those who don't know, it's like a, one of the FDA's like pathways for a class two A medical device. It takes about three months in theory. You know, there's a de novo. It takes six months in theory. But then you know, you then you've got to run trials, and trials never or pilots never take like they always take longer than you expected. And even now, one in Australia that we did on 20 people, we put the, our device on 20 people to see how they found it and whether it would be applicable to patients, etc. Just the times just blow out. You, you submit an ethics thing and suddenly you realize that there's only like every ethics board meets once a month. And if, they, if they're not happy with the ethics proposal, you need to resubmit it a month or even two months later. And then they review it and it takes them another six weeks to then approve it. And, and they only meet every month. And then suddenly it's Christmas and you've got an extra month there. And it's like predicting times is just ridiculously difficult in this area. Mm. No, I, I'm, I'm working on a, 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 like a mini series talking about how, well, specifically I'm looking at DARPA and how like the government can help build, build out things. And so 
maybe meeting more than once a month would be helpful. <laughs> Just like <laughs> living <right> there. <laughs> Right, right. And like, and this is the thing for us, right? So one of the pilots we're looking at doing in Australia, like, they're like, you have to use this specific ethics committee in this specific location. And they mean, they, they, they tell us they meet every month, but you look at the schedule and it's more like every six weeks. <laughs> and like, you look closer at the schedule and then they closed over Christmas. And so it's more like, you've got like eight to 10 opportunities in the year to slide in an ethics proposal and get it right the first time. At the same time, you know, if you're ever doing like that Elon Musk thing, like it's good to throw out, you know, throw out a number. Like, who yeah. cares? Like, yeah, I was wrong. I'm not trying to like goad you for a number. I'm just like, yeah. Look, to be honest with you, I, I want to be saving some lives within 18 to 24 months. I actually think we may even be able to do that sooner than that. You know, I, I reckon in some of our pilots, if we can start, like when we start doing our actual clinical trials, if we end up going down the clinical trial pathway, I'm hoping that during that process, we'll say so. And I could, say, I could see that being 18 to 24 months, sort of like at a, my, my most realistic estimate. You know, you're testing this out, you get someone that gets sepsis and our algorithm picks up on it and it proves that it actually works. But in that situation, that person then didn't go into hospital and didn't get sepsis, <laughs> which is a good start. Because, you know, the odds once you get severe sepsis are one in five chance you're not going to make it out alive. So theoretically, one in every five people that we pick up that was going to develop severe sepsis, we save their life. So that's exciting for me. But I would say 18 to 24 months, and I had to take a real swing in it. And that's us, like, going crazy. <laughs> what would, like, let's say we got some people listening in. What mm. could, what, is there anyone out here that would be, like, fantastic for you to get in contact with, to talk with, to, like, how can we help? Like, what, what can we do? Like, who would you love to hear from? I don't know. Like, there, there are people who have been like, yeah. oh, I've been looking for these types of people. And then someone contacts them. <laughs> so it's, I don't know. What can be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, there's two groups that I, I, if, if someone's listening, absolutely reach out to me. It'd be amazing to have a conversation. Two, two groups where we really want to have a chat to. Um, we're st- we, you know, we have contacts that are trying to put us in contact with different groups. But so yeah, one of the groups we really want to chat to is, is Sepsis Alliance of America. I think we just need to get in front of them so they know who we are. So if anyone's listening, it'd be great to have a chat. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have a chat and see, get a lot of experiences from Sepsis Alliance of America because they've helped like, deal with this on a, on a regular basis. They're out to solve the problem. And so are we. It'd be nice to partner up with them at some point. The other group we always like to talk to are physicians who deal with a lot of sepsis. The, actually, the, the person I really want to chat to, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you happen to be a physician who thinks that, A, this idea is bullshit, <laughs> or you think uh, that you would struggle to adopt something like this, or, or alternatively you think it's a great idea, I would love to hear from you. I would like to find out why you think it's bullshit, why you think it would be really tough to implement, because then we can make it not so tough to implement. <laughs> so it actually gets adopted. So speaking to your point earlier, Lowell, about making sure that, that stuff like this gets adopted, speaking to physicians and making sure we get it right for them, that's the most important thing for us. I feel like a lot of people only hear from people who like something. I actively seek out people who hate my podcast. <laughs> me too. <laughs> it's like, please tell me why you hate X. Yeah. <laughs> like there was a, there's a guy today who did not like my George Church episode. And I was like, oh, please tell me. Like, yeah, yeah. no, I can only improve by it. And yeah, yeah. it's a very valid points. Like some of it, meh. But like a lot of it's very helpful. There's one person who's like very mean of it, about the podcast, but I wrote it all down and now my podcast mm. better for it. I think people, if someone makes you feel bad with their mm. feedback, take a couple of days, write out what they said mm. and go over it with a friend. You know, like, but the feedback, there's, there's some nuggets there. Like you don't have to please them. Like you can't please everyone. Don't try it. But <laughs> pro, there's probably like some hidden nuggets of wisdom there. Sometimes people are like, oh, I don't have the time blah, 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 to listen to an hour long ep- interview. <laughs> and it's like, okay, sweet. I'm adding hyperlink timestamp show notes. So people can see what it's being talked about. And you can click mm. around. Bam. You know, like I wouldn't have had that unless I had that conversation. 
So that's, like, like that's it. Though. Like, sorry, yeah. No, no, I was just gonna be like, so anyone who hates this guy, <laughs> you know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> he wants that hate mail. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, like, send the hate mail my way. Like, but be prepared for a conversation because I want to know why. Like, be like, give me hate mail, but like, tell me why. And like, um, that's the thing for us as a, as a company. The thing that's helped us grow the most over time is the people that hated us or like thought that we were full of crap. And but we're willing to explain why. And we've made some like we made some huge product changes early on, just based off some someone being like, "I think this is a lot of crap." You know, like everyone else is going, "Yeah, great, yeah, great, yeah, great." And when everyone's saying, "Yeah, great," you know, there's a problem. And then yeah. there's someone's like, "I think sorry." Yeah, I don't. If everyone's like, "Oh, well, this is a great idea," it's like, "I don't believe, it. I don't trust it. I'm like, oh, this <laughs> yeah, is, "I don't buy I'm that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly right. And so then you get someone that's like, "No, I think it's just crap because of this reason." I think of a concrete example. There were so many of them. They're like, I just don't think, oh, I'm, I think, you know, some people's skin would react to the, the type of ECG electrodes we were using. And guess what? They did. <laughs> and I was like, well, crap. You know, I should listen. It's that sort of stuff. And we've changed product design. What have we? Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you're out there, you're listening, you think what we're doing is ridiculous or it would be extremely hard to adopt or you do love it. It'd be great to hear why you love it, why you love the concept. Or if you think that there'd be difficulty adopting, we'd love to hear from you. What good avenues for people to contact you through? <laughs> do you know, it's funny because the start of this interview started with, why do you think Patch? Like, why'd you come up with the name Patch? And I was like, it's great, except for the fact that it's hard for people to email us. So yeah, please put it in the hyperlinks. You can go to our website. It's www.patchedmedical.com. And I'm going to spell that. It's P-A-T-C-H-D medical.com. No E. <laughs> you can reach us there. Get in touch at patchmedical.com. Also works um, as an email. That's probably the best way for people to get in contact with me. I think you're on LinkedIn too, aren't you? <laughs> Allegedly, I exist on LinkedIn. But I'm trying you. to remember how I contacted you now. I always like when people through, start uh, through through uh, another company, another YC company. Oh, okay. It, well, I was recently asked, like, oh, how'd you meet this person? I was like, oh my god, how did I meet them? They're just <laughs> in my life now. Like, it just kind of exists. When was like, that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Lot. I'm glad I exist in your life <laughs> in a random way. All right. So people, like, that's that's a good way. Team team and advisor wise, is there anyone you're missing? Anyone you need? to have that would just like that make that 18 to 24 months much more guaranteed to happen if you had them on the team (laughs) yeah the someone who's actually gone through the fda process completely from start to finish and happens to know how to do absolutely everything (laughs) that would make my life a bajillion times easier that's who i'm that's who i'm missing at the moment we we uh, we have some fda knowledge because we used to work at a company that makes well brain implants of sorts, like cochlear implants. So, but like that lot, for me, that knowledge is very limited for my co-founder to be more extensive. But I think we need someone on the team that deep FDA knowledge. How do we navigate the hell out of this and go through it without spending six years trying to go through it? And finding that person is always a real challenge. I think that's probably the team member we're missing at the moment. I think we like, we probably do it without them, like with like a consultant, et cetera. But like having someone in-house, just like if anyone's out there doing a medical startup, <laughs> is like something like ours where you're like making diagnostics and sure you'd know this. Having someone who, really knows their shit with the FDA and makes a big difference. This is a really interesting idea that, that, that I've been playing with. It, it, it's not related to anything I was going to ask you, but there's this idea that if you're, if you're like a negative person to work with, you weren't saying any of this, but this just made me think of this through the idea of consultants, that, mm-hmm. um, that like skills are a commodity, but like if you find the right people, you keep them on even in the hard times. And so like being a consultant, it was just something I did for the last three or four years, but like you're only valued as long as you can contribute, but the same yeah same time being an advisor a part of the team it's an entirely different animal like i yeah i yeah i don't know if you had the choice between the two like people listening like oh am i gonna you know be a consultant or like be a part of the team i mean if you really believe in it i'd go for like being a part of the team like it's yeah. it's it's yeah you know, absolutely it's, it's, and and it makes a huge difference to 
like culture and everything as well. I mean, the, our team members, like we, like our team members are the best part of our damn company. You know what I mean? Like, and they, and they, and like they get trained up in new areas. And we had one guy who wanted to like, there's this, this one guy we had Queensland, which is part of Australia we were in, who, um, I'd worked with him once on a group project and he didn't quite have the skill set we needed at the time, but I knew he was someone who would like pick up basically anything we put in front of him. And we had no money as a company this time. We were really early on. And I was like, listen, man, I'd love you, love you to work for us, but you know, we, we do not venture funded at the moment. You know, like we're, we're a tiny company, just white, like, like way my co-founder and I like working in a shed, trying to stay alive, you know? Uh, and he's like, I'll come work you for free. He's like, I'll come join you for free. And he joined us for, for three months. Um, this was in our earlier days. He ended up staying on as, as one of our, our most important employees. He ended up building out our first prototype, building out our first app. I mean, obviously we ended up, you know, picked him up as an actual employee instead of paying him and the, re- and the rest of it. And he's ended up being the most valuable employee we had. And it was just, it was just ridiculous. And that wouldn't have happened if we were just consulting out for the, because he ended up filling the role that we needed filled and just learned it himself and becoming so much more valuable. But if we'd done that with consultants, we never would have had that. Anyway, I know where I'm going with that point, but... No, I hear you. You know, I think this idea that people... I, the technical... Sarah from, from Truveris, the first episode I ever... Like, that's on the podcast, I just recently redid with her because the audio got effed up and I never realized it. And <laughs> she, she talks about... We talk about in that episode, we're like, if you want to be doing something that you're not doing, the only way you're going to be doing it, you're, the only way you're going to get there is by doing things that you're not doing now. So like, yeah. he, didn't, he didn't have those skills, but how is he going to get them? He's yeah. got to build himself in that direction. So I, I think it's a very salient point. So I, I see where you're going with it. I'm doing a kind of a series later on longevity. So I've been asking people, if you can, ah. give, if you can give longevity and at the same time they get a, like a long health span, they wouldn't be sick, but you can give it to anyone past or present, not someone you love or a friend, who would be the three people? So, you know, my example would be, you know, Einstein. Because, like, but he's kind of like Neo. He breaks the matrix. You know, he's, <laughs> he's like too wired in. <laughs> That's the thing. So, if I could give longevity to three people in the world, who Past or present. They could be dead now. But then they, they, would, they, would, they wouldn't be zombies. They would just continue living. <laughs> so I was like, it's like zombies? <laughs> you know, Lowell, <laughs> it was such a fun question. I'm going to give a very dark answer. <laughs> uh, no, I'm serious. Like, you're going to be like, oh, that's dark. No one. And I, and I honest to God mean that. Maybe this is a philosophical thing, but I don't think we'd be where we are today. And I don't think we'll continue to, I just think where we, like where we are right now is only because people are no longer, like certain people are no longer here. So other people step up. It'd be great to see like Martin Luther King Jr. You know, be around for like a, much longer to continue like rights, you know, like black rights, et cetera. Like it'd be lovely to see those people still around, but at the same time, like Steve Jobs gets set up really damn well. You know what I mean? You, you get rid of the old to make way for the new. And I don't know, I think that's really important. So honest to God, Lowell, I wouldn't give it to anybody. And that's only because I think the new sometimes finds a way to solve the problem. That's uh, true. That's fair. I mean, oh, is that such a, that's such a terrible, ex- I, no, I'm going to give a better answer than that. That's my honest opinion. But no, no, I, it, it's, 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 it's honestly, it is fair. I, if you could offer me longevity, I wouldn't take it. I think I kind of, I have like a weird view of death where I think it's like, Hey, you work really hard. And it's like, eh, if it happens, you don't have to worry about <laughs> it. It's like the person who's complaining about it right now, like if you're afraid of it, is not the person yeah. who's going to be feeling it when you're dead. Unless there's like an afterlife. <laughs> and if there's an afterlife, I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, problem solved. <laughs> it's like Pascal's wager, right? It's like to your benefit to be, believe there's an afterlife because if there's not, it doesn't matter. And if there is, you luck into it. So exactly. And you leave your life enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I think it's a good you know, answer. It's, it's a good answer. I, I try. I asked that question for two reasons. One, it gives a, uh, a sense of like who you care about. And two, it gives me people that I don't know who exists that you think are important. 
so that I can <laughs> research more about them. But you know, I, I don't know anyone from you, so I'll move on to the other question. Yeah, well, I just, let me let me just let me just add something there. Like to respond to your question, that so the, the comment you made about it's it, it shows what, what what you value in terms of that, and like the, the kind of people that you value, the people I if I could give longevity to, and no one's been able to do this yet, is someone who can create a true. I think we can allow. I said it's true meritocracy, where like, as in like, where everyone actually has the opportunities to to make something of their life. <laughs> if you could solve all the issues so that everyone had an equal opportunity, that would be fucking amazing. And I mean, that's something I really care about. And in some, to some degree, that's what our company is about. To some extent, is that people who are sick. I want to give people who are sick the opportunity to live a normal life and do normal things and build a company or have kids or, you know like whatever that is for them right like i need to find yeah if i was going to give longevity to someone it'd be someone who was finding a way to make give everyone an equal opportunity to have an awesome life there's this idea that sometimes when you're talking about something that you talk about in a way where like if someone didn't go through that experience i'm talking like abstract but like if they didn't go through that experience they wouldn't know what you mean and i think there's a, an element to what we've been talking about that we haven't discussed which is this fear about when you're sick that if you do the wrong thing it'll make it worse. We kind of, like we, we alluded to it, but like, that's something that, that is a huge component that having something here, you know, that, like patch D that you can, you know, have on you and let mm. you know, like, Hey, I'm going to, I can, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to, and if I'm in danger, I, I had a protection. Like, I think that's something we probably, I don't think we, we, I think we kind of like hinted at it. Cause I think we've had those shared experience. Cause so we don't, we didn't go into it first people who have not been sick or have not been ill. Like there is like this really strong fear that if you do something wrong, you yeah. lost your chance. Like, I just want to touch on that. No, that's, but that's, that's a really good point. Right. And particularly with transplant. Right. And like, there'd be times where like, you know, I do something that's like me trying to live my life. I didn't know. I, and this is where a device like ours would have helped is like, I didn't know it was going to, whether it was going to, was it actually was affecting my health or not. I just want to live a normal life. There's this idea that it's, oh, you're fucking up your opportunity. You know, if you're, you know, you're putting yourself in, in danger and you know, you're an idiot. And I get that from people sometimes. And, and it'd be like, listen, like <laughs> my doctors have said, it's fine. Like <laughs> it's your opinion that makes you think that it's not okay for me to go and exercise or do whatever, you know, I just want to give people control again on that. And that's something, once you've been sick, you, you realize this, you know, it's like you're afraid, but not only are you afraid, but everyone else around you is afraid that something that you're going to do is going to screw up your chances of staying alive. And that fear, if we can remove that fear from people by simply giving them a patch so they can go and live a normal life, I think that'll push so many more people into post-traumatic growth. And the thing is, and also just to give you, because remember I said, there's only one person fighting for you to live a normal life and that's you. No one else is fighting for you to live a normal life. Everyone else wants you to stay safe, stay in your bubble, stay protected. So that, because, and, and because they care, right? They, they're like, we don't want to see you get sicker, you know? And like, how do we stop them getting sicker? Well, conventional knowledge says that we should keep them inside and they shouldn't be going and like exercising or like hanging out with friends who might have cold or like, you know, like doing this. And it's like, I get it. If we can just give people that opportunity to wear something so that if something goes wrong, it gets picked up, then they can, holy shit, Lowell, they can live a normal life. And they say to their family, it's like, hey, I'm good. I've got the patch on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, like, God, that would have made such a difference to my life. This was the eternal fight I had. My, my, parents, my, my parents are a really good example. Like, because they cared about me so much. They'd be like, stop doing that. You shouldn't be doing so much stuff. You're exhausting yourself and it's going to make yourself sicker, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, I'm just trying to live my life, guys. But if I had something objective, I had something objective, I could be like, look, I'm fine. Here's the proof. <laughs> I think this goes to this idea that we, you've alluded to. Like, this like ties into a number of things we've talked about. This is a great... I, I almost feel bad that I'm going to ask you about book recommendations in a minute. But the, the, uh, <laughs> living life is more than being alive. And I think that's what, kind of what we're talking about. Like this, you can, you can be alive. Like old people who can't do anything can be alive. Like and you can live like 500 years, but if you can't do anything in those 500 years, are you really living? 
And I think it's kind of, a, I don't know, not like a morbid thing, but, oh, you know, be, be protected, you know, stay in the bubble, like be safe. And it's like, oh, you got to live. You got to get that. And some, some there's like cost, cost, whatever. But we'll, I'll, I'll segue off. But the, um, so last no, I know, like, I, like, but legit, like, well, like before we bounce off, like I, I genuinely think you're right. I mm-hmm. think there's something to be said for like a life well lived. And I don't know, I guess maybe this is me and maybe this is a dangerous philosophy to have, but I'd rather have 50 years of amazingly fun, enjoyable times with people that I love, doing things that make a difference to people's lives and 100 years of sitting in front of a TV, not being able to go outside behind a hospital window. Um, and that's just, maybe that's just me. And I, and I don't think I'm alone in that. And of course, like, your family wants you to stay safe and stay protected and like stay inside and watch TV and don't go outside and don't get hurt. And But fuck it, sometimes you have to. It means you get to live a normal life. Anyway, that's just... Yeah, yeah. pain to... Fu- <laughs> this is not the segment I want to leave on, but the pain is a powerful teacher. So if you do something wrong, you know, you'll, you'll gain something from it. But, but I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's a sad thing though, Lowell. I, I think that's no. far from it. I think it's actually quite the opposite. I think it's empowering. Like, and that was the thing for me. It's like once I realized that, holy shit, everything's actually in my control, it was huge. Like that's maybe that's what got me into post-traumatic growth. It was like, holy crap, <laughs> it's all in my control. If I think of myself as not sick and pretend I'm not sick, when things do go wrong, I'll get them sorted, you know? <laughs> but I'm just going to think of myself as not sick and just live a completely normal life <laughs> as best I can. And if I can help, if I can help others doing, do that with something like my device, then fuck yeah, I'm in, <laughs> you know? And so like, I think it's the exact opposite of a sad way to, sad way to end things. Lol. I think it's actually a very opti- like a very, like, hopefully an uplifting thing if anyone's listening and is going through some shit like that live the most normal life you can go do the fun things you want to do and have a fucking awesome time like i'm serious whenever i hear normal i always think no i don't want to live normal i want to live <laughs> exactly. to the extent like, normal's not the right word go live an awesome life right like yeah, yeah. I, I, say, no, I say normal because that's like what like i don't know some people just want to live a normal life and that's great but like go live an awesome life you know what i mean do the shit you want to do you know go yeah. jump out of a plane with a parachute on your back you know I don't know, whatever it is for you, just go have a good time with it. And I just yeah, like, yeah. I, and this is the, oh, sorry, Lowell, I'm getting really passionate now. You're just going to have to deal with this. Nick. I'm sorry, I know you want to segue and you're probably ready to be done, but like, just <laughs> no, let me no, finish. I'm, so I'm like, I'm going to keep going for a sec. What, whatever that thing is that you're, you're, like, you really freaking love and want to do, just do it, even when you're sick, right? Like, like, make sure it's okay with your doctors, don't be stupid. But like, you know, like, but, ah, like, if you just go do it. <laughs> you don't know how long you're alive. And even if you're not sick, I can go do it. <laughs> you know, and don't just wait. Right? Like, ah, this is the thing that got me, Lowell. I was in hospital and I'd face my mortality about four or five times. You know, and I'm like, you know, at this point, like, I'm getting sick of looking at my parents in the eye and saying, thanks. Like, I'm not sure I'm going to be here tomorrow. And I heard somewhere in someone's like, you think you have time. And that was, that broke me. When someone said to me, you think you have time, they were right. You know what I mean? I'm laying in a hospital on my deathbed. Jesus Christ, like, I should just start this company today. And so I did. <laughs> I went and approached my friend and said, let's start a company. I want to do this. And he's like, all right, let's do it. But like the thing is, had I never had that experience of facing my mortality, I probably never would have pulled the trigger and started the company. I don't know. Maybe that's where the blessing is in all of this is that like, you think you have time. You don't. You're running out of time all the time. You don't know how long you're going to be healthy for. You don't know how much longer you're going to be alive. If you, you just go, go do it. You know, you hate your job. You want to go into something else. Just do it. <laughs> the, anyway. No, no, I completely agree that there's a couple people in my life that like, I would always be like, no, go out, get out, you know, do stuff, do stuff, you know, you know, not, you know, I don't know, I probably it's that level. I was probably very annoying, but the, <laughs> they're like, nah, well, you know, I got, I got, they don't, they don't sound like this either. This is horrible. <laughs> Talk about them. But they're like, nah, well, I'm all good. I'm all good. And then yeah. they'd get sick. And I was like, I bet you, I bet you, you know, and they would see people playing outside. I could see it in their eye. And I was like, you see my point now, don't you? You know, the, even if it's a flu, even if it's something minor, imagine having this for months. Imagine yeah. knowing this is going to come again and again and again. There's nothing to stop it. 
how yeah. how much would it, it it's it's like dynamic dehydration and all mm. around you there's water and you just have to go out there and this is like okay but um segueing off because <laughs> i think we'll just go back and forth agreeing with each other but the uh, <laughs> a book or resource recommendations because i read a, about a book or, or two I, I read about a book every other day so like i need i need more things to read anything that you found to, to be great anything at all Okay. I'm a bit of like a, like, I love, I love my like, uh, interesting, interesting novels, like self-help sort of stuff. Eyes Wide, Eyes Wide, uh, Eyes Wide Shut, Eyes Wide Open. Eyes Wide Open by Isaac Linsky. Great book. Really freaking good book. <laughs> Read it. <laughs> like, no joke. You'll love it. I found it very insightful. Um, just about, a, it, it, mostly because it echoed my story and probably yours as well. But it's also just an interesting read in terms of making the most of a situation that's really shit. <laughs> but also the psychological battle that comes with that. So anyway, eyes wide open, give it a read, uh, particularly if you're going through something like what either Lowell or I have gone through, not that you really know what we went through, but it's probably something similar if, you, if you're sick. So yeah, eyes wide open is a great book. So the, the, other, the, other ones, the other ones I thought were really, really interesting was Anti-Fragile by Nicholas. Oh, that's a good book. Yeah. yeah, I love that book. And the other one was The the Third Door. I just really enjoyed that book. I, I, no, this may not help anybody, but I just enjoyed the book. It was, a, it was an interesting read. <laughs> Maybe that says a lot more about me than anything else, but it's called The Third Door by Alex Benayan, I think. Really interesting book about. This is more of an entrepreneurship style book, but I really enjoyed it. Have you read *A Man's Search for Meaning* by Victor E. Frankel? Everyone tells me I need to read that, and I've got it on my list, and I haven't read it. You know, isn't that terrible? You you could read it in an afternoon, and I I really think you get I think you get a lot from it. Or I think I think it'd be something that I think you'd like it. Like mm. just like from our, our brief conversations, I think if you read it, I think you would get some from it. Almost like a hundred percent. If you, if I'm wrong, you can like. Email me and I'll send you an imaginary dollar. <laughs> Say <Saying> I'm wrong. <laughs> I appreciate it, Lowell. I'll give it. A, I'll actually, we'll give it a read. I, I throw it in my Audible library and I'll listen to it while I'm riding to the gym one day or something. The beginning is really sad. <laughs> like it is not a positive story. He makes it positive. Quinn of Patch D got his website patchd.com. Where to find him? Where to engage with him? And like you said, if you hate this episode, you love this episode, you want to see more content like this, you don't want to see more content like this, send me an email, send me a message at learnwithhold.com or, you know, what you're about to hear at those avenues. But on Twitter, on whatever, I want to hear the feedback, positive, negative. And if you got something from this, if it encouraged you to do something, send Robert or myself a message. Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell was here, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends, please and thank you.